It's incredibly important because, you know, the crime is committed in country A, the money is in country B. Um, without the ability to enforce each other's judgments, um, there really isn't any way to, to deal with the globalization of crime because um, sovereignty means everything to law enforcement agencies. Sovereignty means nothing to criminals. They right. don't recognize international borders. And banks that uh, and other financial institutions that operate around the world just sort of need to know um, how that works. One of the major tools against financial crime is asset forfeiture. It's been around for many years, actually since the beginning of the Republic. But understanding how it's used, what the process is, what the laws and cases are regarding it, is important to the AML practitioner. In this edition of AML Conversations, AML RightSource Vice Chairman John Byrne sits down with Steph Casella. Steph Casella is currently the author and publisher of Money Laundering and Forfeiture Digest, but more importantly has been instrumental in the use at the federal level of the asset forfeiture laws used by prosecutors and law enforcement throughout the 80s until today. Steph, um, I really appreciate you uh, sitting down and talking to me. There's been a few things that have been a constant in the AML space um, for the longest time that that I can recall, and that is the use of asset forfeiture tools um, for a variety of reasons, and I can't think of anybody else to ask than you uh, about the value of asset forfeiture um, from a law enforcement perspective, but also from a um, financial perspective. So give me a high-level sense, and then I want to talk to you about how, how it became a major tool in the U.S. But first, just generally, if, if I'm a student of AML and I say, well, the, 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 fact, that, um, uh, the fact that law enforcement uh, can come after my money, can come after my house, my business or whatever, how does, how does, that, how does that all work? Well, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, forfeiture has become an essential law enforcement tool in a number of ways. Um, it's a way of punishing the person who launders money or commits a crime and derives proceeds or uses his financial institution to allow those things to happen. It's a way, it's a means of deterrence if you forfeit somebody's assets because he committed a crime or allowed a crime to occur, he's less likely to do it again and, and others are less likely to, to commit that crime. And it's, it's a way of incapacitation. If somebody uses their their business, their financial institution, um, their other assets in some way to launder money, well, then by taking away those assets, they make it less likely that they'll be able to launder money in the future. So it's a way of disrupting organizations. Have the tools been available uh, for a long period of time under U.S. law, just in general? I want to go into how they sort of got ratcheted up in the 80s, which I know you were intimately involved in. But prior to that, was that as they say, was that a thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, James Madison and his colleagues seem to have invented the concept in 1789. The first Congress enacted forfeiture laws. At that time and for a long time afterwards, it was, it was considered a tool of uh, maritime enforcement, somebody using a ship to, uh, for piracy to smuggle goods for slave trading. Um, the problem was you were unable to get your hands on the, um, the actual owner of the ship or the pirate, but you could get your hands on the ship or the cargo. 
and those things could be forfeited uh, in a, what's called civil forfeiture or non-conviction-based forfeiture without having to bring a criminal prosecution. And so that was the original genesis, and then over time it was expanded into you know, various other things in the Prohibition era. It was used a great deal um, for that purpose. And then when you get to the 1970s and 80s, you find that in the drug context, you know, really increasing in use. And today it's available both criminally and civilly for almost all federal crimes. You know, um, interesting you mentioned that about the 80s. Uh, you're, you're kind enough to come to a class that I'm teaching here at George Mason on money laundering and terrorism and corruption. And uh, a few weeks ago, I found in my garage a uh, 1984 report, the President's Commission on Organized Crime, mm -hmm. the cash connection. And in it, they had some verbiage about recommended action in terms of asset forfeiture. So that was 1984. And subsequently, as, as we both know, in 1986, major laws enacted in the money laundering space. Mm -hmm. How did you get engaged, um, you know, when that report was issued, and then what happened during the tail end of the 80s that people sort of, I don't say they woke up and said, wow, here's a tool we can really use, but clearly that was a major focus of what prosecutors and law enforcement wanted to see Congress either strengthen or enact. Well, that's right. I mean, and there was no such thing as money laundering, as you know, until 1986. And when that uh, law came into effect, along with it came a parallel provision for the forfeiture of all property involved in the money laundering offense. Um, that was 1986, and it, the original statute had some glitches in it, as new statutes often do. It happened that I was working on the Hill for a senator uh, in 1988 when they, uh, the revisions came through, and I was able to help out with drafting those. It got me really interested in the topic. And then a year later, I went back to the Justice Department, where I'd been before and where I returned and spent the rest of my career. And uh, when I went back, I was able to join the money laundering and forfeiture section, what later became that section. And uh, it was all brand new. So now we have these new statutes, new money laundering statute, new forfeiture provisions recently enhanced uh, in the money laundering space, and that here's an opportunity to learn how to use them, to, to understand what they mean, to provide the training materials, to go out and train prosecutors, to bring the first test cases. And it was a very exciting thing to do because it was brand new and there was no law, and we were sort of making it up as we went along. Is it fair to say that most of the uh, focus of asset forfeiture in those years was directed against drug trafficking, or was it broader than that? No, I think that's accurate. Uh, I think in the, certainly um, the major impetus for all these changes to the law, in, in those years there was a new um, crime bill every October of an even-numbered year, mm -hmm. 84, 86, 88, 90, and they were all uh, because of the war on drugs and the drug crisis. So there was a lot of emphasis on drug trafficking um, and, and the laundering of drug proceeds. It wasn't only, I mean, in those days, it was also RICO forfeiture, and there was forfeiture for other things as well, but uh, it wasn't until um, the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, CAFRA, in the year 2000, that forfeiture was expanded beyond um, street crimes to include all the white-collar crimes, and that's where we've seen a huge increase since then. Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting. The um, w What I remember about the asset forfeiture uh, Laws was, as you said, every two years, ma major drug bill. Um, I do remember being at that time with the Bankers Association. One of the, I don't want to say one of the pushbacks, but one of the things I can recall the financial sector saying is, 
we have no problem with law enforcement going after bad guys. But when you start to forfeit cars and houses and things like that, what's the process? Which I know there is. I'm going to ask you to talk about it. I do remember uh, one of the few times I actually wrote an amicus brief was in uh, was in sometime in the 90s, and it had to do with the with so-called innocent owner defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, at this at this point, don't even recall what we were trying to do other than making sure there was sort of clear parameters, which which I, I believe there were, and sure you, you can um, you can answer that. But talk, talk a bit about um, that part of forfeiture, going after items, currency. You know, obviously the goal the goal is you know nobody can question the goal, but when it goes after people that could could conceivably be considered innocent, mm-hmm. what's the process if I'm trying to figure out what my rights are? Sure. Well, of course, we have to understand there's two ways in which the government does forfeiture, one criminally, one civilly. In a criminal case, the property being forfeited is the property of the defendant, and it's not possible to forfeit a third party's property. Even if the third party was complicit in the crime, if the third party, like his wife or his partner, is not charged and not convicted, we can't forfeit that person's property. So there's less controversy uh, about the process in criminal cases. It's not without controversy. You still have to prove uh, the the defendant committed the crime. You still have to prove the connection between the property and the crime, and you have to deal with third parties who claim the property really belongs to them. But generally, that's the less controversial. Where the controversy arises when it comes to non-conviction-based forfeiture or civil forfeiture. Um, And there's a misunderstanding generally, uh, if you read the press uh, stories about it, that the government doesn't have to prove there was a crime. Uh, Completely wrong. The government has to prove there was a crime and it has to prove the connection between the property and the crime. So it has to prove both of those things and it has to prove them by preponderance of, of the evidence. That's not the way the law always was, though. I mean, when when this was first created back in the uh, 18th century, and they were dealing with pirates and, mm-hmm. and slave traffickers, they put the burden on the pirate or the slave trafficker to prove the innocence of the property. And uh, the controversy throughout, say, the 80s and 90s was, does that make sense as we expand forfeiture to include people's you know, bank accounts and businesses and houses and vehicles? And um, we proposed in the Justice Department in... Oh, around 1992 or 93, that the law be updated. Uh, that's that what became the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act. There had been a, a proposal from the defense lawyers to update it, and the Justice Department came forward with its own proposal to update the law. And basically the, the notion was, if we're in this modern era, if we're going to be forfeiting that kind of property, not pirate ships and not slave ships, uh, we should be putting the burden on the government to prove the crime, put the burden on the government to prove the nexus and also create an innocent owner defense. So if someone really did not know that their property was being used to commit a crime, they would have an exemption from the forfeiture. On the innocent owner defense, um, let's give an example for the financial sector to understand, meaning that um, it's a piece of property that the institution has uh, some involvement in or ownership or whatever, right? And so the institution, um, does it have to prove that it did proper due diligence? That's that sort of thing. So what does a bank have to do to say, hey, DOJ, I get what you're going at, but this is this is ours. Right. We, we knew nothing of the underlying activity, or we did everything we could, and we don't think it's equitable for you to come after us. Sure. Well, uh, 
the, the banking situation is a little more complicated than the standard one, so it's first maybe helpful to understand the basic concept. Sure. If uh, someone uses uh, his wife's car to go rob the bank and uh, she didn't know anything about it, um, she's an innocent owner of the car. He used the car, he, he robbed the bank, and he used the car to rob the bank. So the government has proven the two things that it needed to prove. But the wife can say, I didn't know that my husband was going to use my car to go out and rob the bank, and, and she's an innocent owner. She proves that, and she gets the car back. Um, she would have the burden of proving that it, she's really the owner of the car. Often these people are nominees who don't have any interest in the car, but somebody's right. claiming to be the owner in order to circumvent the forfeiture and that she didn't know about it. Now, in the banking context, it might be that someone uses his house as the place where he stores drugs, where he runs a gambling operation, where he's planning terrorist acts and so forth, and the bank has a, a lien on the house. It has a mortgage. It has a deed of trust on the house. As long as that predated the use of the property to commit a crime, then there's no question. The, the defense uh, has two alternative ways of going of working, but in this case, it's I owned the property before you used it to commit a crime, and uh, I have uh, I had no knowledge of your using the property during the time you were committing the crime, and so I'm an innocent owner. So the bank would just simply say, you know, we were unaware that the property on which we had the lien was being used for this purpose, and that's an innocent owner defense. The other situation that could be problematic for a financial institution is where someone purchases a house with, say, drug proceeds or criminal proceeds mm -hmm. and then uses it as collateral for a loan. And then the bank does have to um, show that it acquired its interest as a bona fide purchaser for value. That is, it, it gave value the loan in exchange for the interest in the property, and when it did, it had no reason to know that it had previously been purchased with criminal proceeds or previously been used. So, so would an example there be if um, it's sort of basic due diligence, right? You're doing a credit check on somebody, and you come in, and you're going to purchase this house or this business, mm -hmm. and it's very clear to me that your source of funds are pretty sketchy, mm -hmm. meaning that maybe you're brand new to the space, uh, so that would be something where the bank would have to overcome that. And you, as a prosecutor, would say, All right, you're claiming innocent ownership status. Right. But the bottom line is you never should have given this guy or this gal um, this loan. You should right. never have extended the credit. It's pretty clear from the facts that you either were ignorant or willfully blind to, That's right. to if, what's going on. That's right. If the, the bank can't be a bona fide purchaser for value in that situation if it did uh, if it ignored the red flags, you know, the person came in and bought the house with bags of cash. Right, right. Or, or he uh, claimed to be in, in, in business X, but all the money was wired from Mexico from some guy who had no connection to his business. Um, th those are some flags that would trigger the reasonable financial institution to exercise some due diligence, and the failure to do so uh, would... Uh, would meet, would negate the innocent owner defense. What are some of the, in the 90s, what are some of the major asset forfeiture cases that both, not major in terms necessarily of the the funds or the property forfeited, but but created sort of uh, um, um, major themes under these laws? Like, what, like if you're, as you're going to do tonight, as you're teaching a class, you're saying, these couple of cases, mm -hmm. if you read through this and the facts here, these made a big difference in terms of the environment for asset forfeiture. Sure. Well, um, 
There was the Bank of New England case, which established the proposition that there's collective knowledge on the part of the bank. So the Bank of New England case uh, wasn't money laundering per se. It was it was violation of the currency transaction reporting requirements and the failure to file, um, you know, the CTRs uh, when the customers conducted cash transactions in excess of $10,000. And the notion there was that even if not, there was not one person at the bank who knew all the facts, but collectively the tellers, the, the supervisors, the various managers in the bank, each of them knew a little piece of this. Collectively, the bank knew that these people were making $10,000 deposits or $10,000 withdrawals in cash. They should have filed um, CTR. So that was the collective knowledge rule developed at a Bank of New England. Um, then there were a lot of other cases. I mean, the uh, BCCI case mm-hmm. was a case involving the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, and it um, was con- it pled guilty. It was convicted of basically defrauding people in 70 countries around the world of tens of millions of dollars. Um, uh, no, I should have said tens of billions of right, dollars. Right. And um, the forfeiture aspect of that was that we were able to recover uh, through criminal forfeiture all the money the bank had in the United States, which was $1.2 billion, and then had to litigate third-party claims. And so the issue there was whether or not uh, a third party who may have been a depositor at the bank, may have been uh, uh, in some economic relationship with the bank, may have been using the bank as an intermediary while transferring money from bank A to bank B, and it just happened to be passing through uh, BCCI on the day that the bank was shut down. All of those people claimed that the money belonged to them. And what that case established was if you're simply an unsecured creditor, you are not the owner of the funds, mm-hmm. and uh, you're not entitled to recover um, the money. So that was essential for two reasons. One, it established that principle that owners are protected, lien holders are protected, unsecured creditors are not protected. And the other thing it was essential for is that it established the process. You know, how do you go about litigating third-party claims? And uh, that case developed all the law on that. Well, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I want to ask you about asset forfeiture laws outside of the U.S. Where do they stack up? And then there's been some controversy about some use of asset forfeiture by sometimes local police and others. I want to ask you to, to weigh in on that. So we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Rightsource website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. Okay, we're back. Um, so, Steph, one of the things that an AML professional tries to understand is uh, U.S. law, but other laws. So, whether it's under the rubric of uh, FATF and all the countries that belong to that, uh, also, if you're an AML professional in a large international bank, you obviously need to have some awareness of the laws and regulations in the other places where your customers are. That's mm-hmm. obvious. In asset forfeiture, I admit I'm not as familiar with the use of those tools outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. Give, it, give me a sense of that both generally and then maybe some examples. Sure. Well, there's, there's several aspects to your question. One is, um, to what extent do countries enforce each other assets forfeiture judgments? Uh, and that's sort of a very 
important and emerging part of the law. Um, it, the United States only recently gained the ability to enforce another country's asset forfeiture judgment. Other countries uh, on a case-by-case basis are, are confronting that question for the first time. Um, so, and it's incredibly important because, you know, the crime is committed in country A, the money is in country B. Um, without the ability to enforce each other's judgments, um, there really isn't any way to, to deal with the globalization of crime because um, sovereignty means everything to law enforcement agencies. Sovereignty means nothing to criminals. They right. don't recognize international borders. And banks that uh, and other financial institutions that operate around the world just sort of need to know um, how that works. The other aspect of the question is what kind of forfeiture laws does each country have? Um, most countries, not all, but most countries now have a criminal forfeiture statute. Uh, obviously, the wording differs from place to place, but it's not um, unexpected in any given country to find that there is a statute that says if you're convicted of a crime, you forfeit the proceeds of the crime and any property used to commit it. Now, that's largely because the FATF says you have to have such a statute on the books if you want to be you know, part of the in very general terms, the, the, the community of nations that enforce um, AML procedures and mm-hmm. so forth. That doesn't mean most of these countries have ever used the law. Uh, I've been to many of them to do training and to, um, to, to assist in developing some capacity. And in the vast majority of cases, they say, well, the law is on the books, but we were, we were told to enact it, and we copied the, the statute from, some other, from the country next door, and none of us have any idea how to use it. So that's, that's a problem. So, but how does that – so today when FATF uh, mutually evaluates other countries, right. this go-round past few years has been on effectiveness. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that way before. It was basically, like you said, is we have a law on the books, so we're good. Right. That's not the case anymore. Is it still the case, though, with asset forfeiture? Does asset forfeiture get reviewed and evaluated, those laws, as well as the AML laws, or, or not – to the same level? Uh, I don't know exactly what FATF's rules are, but I know the countries are acting as if that's the case because that's why they're calling, uh, you know, international experts in to help them, you know, develop capacity. Which is good news, generally, if if they want to actually take, dust it off the old three-ring binder and utilize it. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, The the second problem, though, is that most of them outside of the English-speaking world, English common law countries generally have both criminal forfeiture and non-conviction-based forfeiture. Outside of the English-speaking world, the non-conviction-based forfeiture is a rarity. Um, I was, some have it. I was in uh, Guatemala this year. They're developing capacity. Um, Argentina and Brazil were both looking at it very seriously. Germany just enacted the law a year ago. Uh, Italy has one. Um, what many countries are coming to appreciate is that you need to have both civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture because One without the other is like having a left glove but not a right glove. Mm -hmm. You might have somebody uh, who can't be prosecuted because he's a fugitive, because he died, because uh, he can't be found. Um, uh, And in those cases, you still want to be able to recover the money. And in many cases in the developing world, it's kleptocracy. You know, the money has left, you know, Mm -hmm. some West African country or Latin American country. And in order to find it, uh, in order to recover it, they have to be able to use a non-conviction-based forfeiture uh, provision in another country uh, because they don't, the other country doesn't have the defendant to prosecute. I wanted to talk about where we are sort of today, but I also want to go back to your career. So after you left the Hill, you went to the Justice Department for a period of time, but then you went 
Uh, you were an assistant U.S. attorney and uh, worked in those offices. Yeah. So kind of bring us from DOJ to bef- to when you retired. Uh, you spent the lion's share of your work. And well, I, I started in the organized crime section at Justice in 1985, and I was there for a few years. Then I went up to Capitol Hill and worked for the senator, and then I came back to Justice, and I was in the money laundering uh, and asset forfeiture section um, until 2007. And then I, after that, I became an AUSA. Uh, first, I was uh, a special in Alexandria, Virginia, right. in the Eastern District of Virginia. And then I became the uh, chief of the forfeiture and money laundering section in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So for the last six years of my career, I was an AUSA there and the chief of that office. So um, now, you're, as you mentioned, you're, you're working um, uh, as a uh, asset forfeiture expert around the world, locally. I know we'll tell folks at the end of this, you have a publication that I would urge everybody in the AML space to, uh, to get a subscription because it's, there's no place you can go for the information that you provide on asset forfeiture. But I do want to s- sort of not end on a, not a negative note, to sort of disabuse people. So several years ago, and, and I haven't seen anything in a bit, but there was a series of stories in the main and uh, uh, main press and general media, this isn't a criticism, that looked at some cases where the, the facts seemed mm-hmm. that individuals who had cash on them, mm-hmm. I think that's mainly the cases I remember, you know, they were going to uh, purchase shrubbery across state lines or whatever, but they had, you know, a large amounts of cash on them, and they would get pulled over for whatever reason, you can tell me what the reasons were, <clears throat> and then their monies would be uh, forfeited. And the argument made was that these laws were so broad, and you've already made it clear that you can present innocent owner defense, and there's a process. You've you've already explained all of that, and obviously it's a lot more, I don't want to say nuanced, it's a lot more comprehensive than people think. But there certainly was a push, both sides, it seemed to be sort of bipartisan, that prosecutors, law enforcement are out of control because they simply want to get the funds so they can get tanks in the streets in local cities. Tell us what really happened and sort of what the state of play with forfeiture laws are today. Sure. Well, the vast majority of time that the federal government uses the forfeiture laws, uh, it involves cases that everyone would appreciate to be of significant importance. We've already mentioned funds being stolen by kleptocrats in developing countries, terrorist assets, millions of dollars taken from victims uh, by fraud, when the fraudster cannot be found uh, or has died. Um, you know, there's any number of uh, cases involving people using uh, businesses to launder, launder property, uh, cases where currency is taken from a courier and the courier doesn't, is not the, not the defendant, he's just a dumb courier carrying the money, but it's part of a, of a major drug operation. Uh, cases where in the interests of justice, it doesn't make any sense to prosecute the person because the, uh, an appropriate sanction is a, is a civil remedy. In all of those instances, I don't think anyone complains about the use of uh, non-conviction-based forfeiture. It's necessary. You can't do it any other way if the guy is dead or a fugitive or he committed the crime abroad and the money's here. The controversy, unfortunately, is with respect to a very small minority of the cases, which are the ones where the local police make a traffic stop and they, and they find a few thousand dollars wrapped in rubber bands um, in, the, in the car. And um, they make a seizure based on probable cause, which they have to have. And uh, 
then they turn it over to the DEA or some other federal agency for forfeiture under federal law. The reason that's controversial, I believe, is not because there isn't due process. I mean, the government still has to prove that the crime occurred, still has to prove the connection between the property and the crime. There's an innocent owner defense. There are deadlines on filing these things. There's a right to a jury trial. Um, you know, if the government loses, it has to pay the attorney's fees of the, of the claimant. But the reason they're controversial is because under the equitable sharing program, the local police department gets 80% of the money. And that looks like, creates the appearance of, you know, policing for profit. You know, it exposes the police and, and unfortunately, then the entire forfeiture program um, to this criticism that that's what's really going on. Um, the danger is that, uh, you know, when I worked on Capitol Hill, and you, know, you remember this well, John, having come in and visited me in those days. If, if any staffer up there has a file labeled asset forfeiture, what's in it are news clips. There's no law in there. There's no statutes. There's no cases. <laughs> you know, there's no treatises. It's news clips. And so all they're reading is the news clips about you know, cops making seizures of $6,000 from knucklehead at a, at a traffic light and how uh, that was forfeited and then the guy got his property. Uh, it didn't get his property back and the police got to keep it. Um, and so uh, the danger is that that taints all of what uh, criminal uh, and civil mm -hmm. forfeiture cases brought by the federal government uh, are about. And there's a danger that Congress will throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what they don't seem to realize, uh, I'm afraid, is that if you raise the burdens on the government in the case involving the cop and the $6,000, you're also raising the burden in the case involving Russian organized crime laundering money through the U.S. banking system and investing in New York real estate. Uh, and those are the cases that they would, the government would lose because a higher burden of proof would make it impossible to trace the money through shell corporations and foreign banks and, and, and all of that. So that's, that's the real danger. I mean, there is a solution, though. I mean, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You could simply say in cases involving seizures by local police, the government's not going to be interested unless it involves at least, you know, pick a number, $15,000, $20,000. That's a much more serious case. It's much, ironically, it's much more difficult for the government to prove a forfeiture in a $5,000 case than it is in a $50,000 right. case because there's no reason to be driving around $50,000. As a prosecutor, I know that the usual defense when someone is stopped with a lot of cash in his car is, I was looking for a truck I wanted to buy. I mean, I'm amazed that there are any trucks left for sale out there. Everybody <laughs> driving around is right. looking for a truck <laughs> to buy. Um, but, you know, that's plausible if it's $5,000, and it's not so plausible as $50,000 or even $25,000. So there's a, there's a way of addressing the problem without undercutting the government's ability to go after the really serious crimes that it really uses civil forfeiture to go after. So uh, let me get you out on this. So where are we today in 2018? Obviously, we have a brand-new Congress coming in, mm -hmm. and it'll be split. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I haven't noticed that this has been a topic in a bit, so maybe I'm missing it, but I haven't. I do remember seeing sort of a flood of stories, and the flood was probably three, right? Yeah. But I haven't seen that in quite a while. What I know you're not as involved in that part of this anymore, but what's your sense? Uh, is, is there uh, is the Justice Department sort of working to fend off changes, or this really is something that hasn't got – back on people's radar? Well, I think the Justice Department, to its credit, under both Attorney General Holder and Attorney General, General Sessions, um, took steps uh, through policy and um, through internal controls to weed out the cases that were problematic. I mean, there are now um, tighter controls on these adoptive cases involving the police. I mean, they o it was always the case that the government had to prove 
the forfeitability of the property, um, now there's a little bit more control over um, the timing uh, of the you know, how, how quickly the case has to be processed so that somebody gets his day in court mm-hmm. sooner and, and so forth. So I think to a large extent the government has been able to um, you know uh, quell the the uproar over uh, what appeared in the press to be uh, misuse of the forfeiture. Uh, the provisions are still pending in, in Capitol Hill. The, the Koch brothers are the ones behind the. Um, really? Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to understand why the Koch brothers are so yeah. concerned about um, people being stopped at traffic lights with five thousand dollars. It's possible that they realize that the, that if the Congress guts that law, they're also gutting the law that has to do with the laundering of international criminal proceeds. I don't know, but uh, they're the ones who've been behind it, and uh, I'm hopeful that. Uh, if Congress decides to take it up, they'll appreciate that there's no reason to have to uh, undermine a very essential law enforcement tool in all the areas we've been talking about, from international organized crime to terrorist financing to to huge you know, fraud cases and kleptocracy cases, uh, just to address the problem that uh, the perception that the police are policing for profit. Well, Steph, thank you for taking the time. Um, again, I'll let people know in a bit where to get your. Uh publication, and obviously we'll be watching uh, this next Congress to see if there's any activity, but also I think you've given us some ideas about international use of the tool, and I think that'll be helpful, but thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. I know I've said this many times before, but it really is an honor to be able to sit down with public servants that have done so much in the area of financial crime deterrence, and it's uh, not a stretch to say that Steph Casella is one of those individuals. His work on asset forfeiture and money laundering for the past 30-plus years has really been a benefit to law enforcement, obviously those that need to prosecute cases, and of course for the public policy reasons that he mentioned, um, taking the asset forfeiture laws and making them useful, making them as they are designed to be, a deterrent uh, to punish those that commit financial crimes and to get some relief for victims. And I think that's an important aspect of this as well. Uh, He's head of his firm, Asset Forfeiture Law, LLC. He's written a textbook on asset forfeiture, Asset Forfeiture Law in the United States. For more information about his publication and the work that he and his team do, go to assetforfeiturelaw.us. And again, um, hopefully we've given you more than a taste of some of the important aspects of understanding this not so much complicated area, but this very, very important area that, uh, you know, when we talk about money laundering laws and regulations, you can't really talk about them without what are the penalties for violating the law? What are the penalties for the criminals that use these ill-gotten gains for all sorts of nefarious activities that we've talked about before? You know, obviously it's been... Things like human trafficking, elder abuse, drug trafficking, all those areas. So understanding asset forfeiture is really pretty important. I want to thank Steph for sitting down with me today. Ask all of you to take a look again at his website and the information he's provided there. Uh, This is John Byrne for AML Source and AML Conversations saying we'll see you next time.